Welcome to episode 271 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. If you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings help new people find this show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 271 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is writer and performer Kian So Min. If, if someone was to ask you to describe your artistic practice or to describe yourself as an artist, mm-hmm. how do you describe yourself? Oh, I think this is a little tougher for me because I um, am active in a, a variety of disciplines. But I would say my artistic practice really stems from my experience of being um an East Asian woman living in Canada. Mm. Um, I really find a lot of inspiration in my heritage mm-hmm. and and in other Asian countries as well. And I think that really guides a lot of my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you mentioned your your many the many areas that you that you work in. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's another way of asking a, 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 a similar question. Mm-hmm. What are your hyphens? For example, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an actor writer or a performer writer. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are your hyphens? I would say I am a writer hyphen uh, performer. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by that, the choice to say performer. Because mm-hmm. you notice that I said actor, but then I corrected it to to performer. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the reason why I I lean more towards performer is because in recent years um, I do more of the creation of my own work. Mm-hmm. So that to me, that's more than just being an actor. Right. Just forgive me, everybody who's an actor. <laughs> um, for you, what what is it about your work that 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 makes you lean more towards performer yeah I guess because I hesitate to use the word dancer because I'm not really like professionally accredited like I've trained for a couple of years but I'm I wouldn't call myself like a professional dancer and also I think it stems from the fact that you know going back to sort of 
um, my heritage in that like a lot of Asian theater um, or Asian performance um, like practices don't really delineate dance from acting from mm. singing it, it's sort of just all one like performance um, and and I really like that approach of not segmenting these different practices um, but just saying you're a performer like you mm. you, you know these these disciplines that we've sort of divided here um i don't think really exist back there um, mm. traditionally at least which is why mm. i gravitate more towards performer because i think um it, in a way it sort of speaks to my uh my belief that it should be sort of one happy gestalt <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah um now in terms of, of, of finding your way to being a performer, what is your theater origin story? How did you discover that you wanted to be a performer? What what was that what was that path like for you? Yeah, so I uh, well, my first like introduction to theater was actually you know I at first immigrated from South Korea, and you know of course I was six and my parents wanted me to start learning the language pretty fast. So they actually sent me to like a summer camp at the YMCA. That was like a theater summer camp. And uh, that was sort of like my first experience. And we like did the, um, uh, the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet. And I was a nurse and like, you know, I knew no English and I had to like memorize the nurse's lines. Oh. Uh, but I remember it was so much fun. But then like, um, I think like a lot of Asian immigrant um, children, I wasn't really encouraged towards the arts. Um, it's funny, we're, we're pushed to sort of like play an instrument or, or do something, but like, it's never sort of um, and do all these artistic stuff, but we're never really encouraged to pursue them as a viable career path. What happened was in high school, I decided to not do a second science subject and do an arts, and I did theater arts. And I met a wonderful person, and she's still like my mentor to this day, who introduced me to theater. Hmm. And she also had a sort of like very holistic view of theater as well and it sort it changed my life really like i mm. i loved it you know we were everyone was doing everything everyone was writing everyone was acting everyone was you know just like like there were no sort of like labels and boundaries of roles mm. and and i remember like someone telling me like you're really good at this mm. and i had never been once told in my life that I could be good at something that wasn't math or sciences. And uh, that was sort of like my origin story, like Mm. me realizing that I can do this or like I have something there um, in this milieu. Um, So, yeah. How did your parents take that? Oh, they weren't happy at all. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... And, and I think it was worse because I was actually quite like, um, you know, I was a straight A student. Um, mm. So they were sort of like, how could you waste your brain on the arts? You know, which is totally insulting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we fought a lot. Uh, but in the end, I uh, I won a bet for um, university. So I wanted to go to, I wanted to study theater for university. 
mm-hmm. and they weren't having it. So uh, I actually won a bet my father did where he chose two like very big schools in the States for theater. And he said, if you can't get into one of these two schools, you have to change your major. But if you get into one of the schools, I will pay for your tuition. <laughs> and uh, one of them was Juilliard. And I did that audition first. And mm. I didn't get in. They tell you mm. pretty much like uh, like right after your audition. Oh, really? Like right away? Almost right away. Like literally, oh. I think they see like 50 people and it's super quick, right? Like you're mm. in the room for like maybe three minutes. And mm. then... And then you sort of wait 10 minutes and then they'll, you know, and then they'll just, you know, uh, call out the names of people who could stay for the second round and everyone else Mm -hmm. can just go home. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, but but in a weird way, like I, I never really, like, I didn't feel like, oh, like I didn't get in because to me, it was just like a free trip to New York. (laughs) I mean, I was 17, Mm -hmm. you know, my parents said they were sending me, you know, for the audition at Juilliard. And they were going to like pay for it. And I was like, awesome. I get to go to New York for free. Um, (laughs) So even if I didn't get in, like I was disappointed, but I like, I don't know. Like, I don't think it really like hit me as hard as maybe it did some people or it should have hit me. And then the second school was a university of Southern California, Mm -hmm. which I did get into. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah. uh, And you know, my father was a very gracious man and he, Mm. accepted his loss with dignity <laughs> and uh, he paid for my uh, exorbitant u.s tuition mm. do they have they accepted you as an artist i think i think they've conceded but i don't think they know they don't really understand what i do still mm. and mm. you know to be fair like they don't know this field at all they right. don't know how things work so um and you know you're you're a bit more impatient with your parents sometimes. So like you don't you're you're like trying to explain to them like the granting bodies and and you know mm-hmm. how like you know this isn't just like a you know you just put it up and it's done. Like it takes years to develop a play and you know produce it and and uh, so I would say they've uh, you know I think they've accepted in that like okay she's still doing it. And it seems like she's making some pretty good headway. But like, as far as accepting it as in like, look at our child, she's a theater artist or, (laughs) you know, I don't think we're there yet. (laughs) Now, you're in Montreal? Yes, I am. Um, Is that where your family uh, came to? No, we went to uh, Calgary and I grew up in Calgary. And uh, I actually only been in Montreal. uh, This is my fifth year. Yeah. How so? What took you to Montreal? Yeah, so um, I, you know, I went back to Calgary after university, and you know, try tried a few different places, um, you know, theater companies, try to find my community, and I couldn't really find it, and so I just decided on a whim to move to Montreal because I had visited a friend there, and I quite liked the um, the vibe of the city, like very mm. artistic, very. Um, always something going on so yeah it was really like a whim move like my Mm. brother was uh driving to toronto for school and i was like hey give me some chunk space and we drove across country and you know i got here and just like started calling all the alue signs to try to find a place (laughs) Mm. yeah and uh obviously you've you've liked it you've been there for five years Mm -hmm. um how was your french when you when you got there 
uh, I took French immersion in Calgary. So oh. I, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was a steep learning curve with the Quebecois accent. I think for a good mm -hmm. like three to six months, I had no idea what anyone was saying. And I was like, I have failed the Calgary <laughs> French education system. But um, it was good. Like it was decent. Like, and, and I would say I'm bilingual. Um, mm. Like, yeah, like it's not bad. I always find it it interesting because you know in when I I don't know about the Calgary system but mm -hmm. in the the Ontario French system they were teaching us like French French Parisian French yeah we were taught international French ah. so like very you know no really ac no accent mm -hmm. no uh, you know you definitely don't learn Quebecois like expressions. <laughs> No. So, yeah, it, it was very um, international French for us. I just remember the first time I, I had some friends in Montreal and I went to Montreal and mm. I thought I was being very polite and I have very limited French. But, you know, I said, we, oui, as I was trying to tell you, say yes to somebody. And they were like treating me suddenly like, they're like, oh, we, oui. like I was like somebody, some like monkey putting on airs or something. They were like, oh, look at the, look at the, look at the Anglo trying to be. Then I realized that that's not how they say it in Quebec. They sound more like a duck. They say, wah, wah, wah. And, and I was like, oh, in that way, the French system, the, the French education system in, in, in English Canada really failed me. <laughs> I, well, I think it's it really is a dialect, uh, mm -hmm. like Quebecois French. So, um, like it, it really is sort of like its own language, especially if you go to sort of like the more like like Lac Saint Jean or Saguenay. So, mm. yeah, like it's interesting. I actually never got that response. Like I I always um I always sort of got the whole like uh mm. like should we switch in English? But she seems to be doing all right, and then. <laughs> And then, you know, I'll get the occasional, like, oh, like, ton français est bon. Like, you know, like, wow, like, good uh, job. Uh, yeah. Apparently, your friends were a lot nicer than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I think also, though, my accent, like, I'm really horrible with accents. I don't have a mm. year for it at all. Um, like, I had, like, literally, like, no accent. Like I, I, I think I sound like Siri when I speak in French. Like I don't even have a, I don't even have a Parisian accent. I just have like no accent. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. When did you start writing, as as part of your artistic practice? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I had always written first. Like that's how I got into theater. Like we wrote a play like in high school um, with that mentor. And then I got more towards the acting side. But then, um, you know, while I was studying at USC, I just was so disappointed at the lack of roles for people of color. Um, and it was just so dis disheartening. And, you know, like every time you would do auditions, it's always for like a super stereotypical role. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just like, it felt really awful. So I, I decided after I graduated that like I want to create amazing characters for Asian actors. Like we mm -hmm. deserve amazing roles. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of when I started becoming more of a playwright and stopped acting mm. because it, it gives me a lot of pleasure when I hear from, you know, Asian actors being like, this is a beautiful role. Like I want mm. to do this role. Like this is amazing. Mm. And that gives me a lot of uh, satisfaction. Mm. Um, 
just just to speak really frankly about it, how are you finding? How did you find the roles in 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 Montreal for uh, a, an Asian woman? Um, I think it's evolved. I think a lot of people. Well, I can only speak on the Montreal Anglophone theater mm-hmm. community, um, but you know, a lot of people were super welcoming, excited, uh, you know, um, and I think it's because I had a sort of different background, you know, like I had studied Buto and I had studied mm. sort of like other sort of more, I don't want to say esoteric, but I guess like sort of like niche fields that you couldn't mm. really find anywhere. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, I was always welcomed and it was very warm, um, particularly because like I was new as well. You know, now that I've been here for almost five years, I would say that as an Asian woman, there are not that many opportunities mm. in Montreal um, and in Quebec. Um, mm. You know, in fact, there is a really big exodus of Asian artists mm. to Ontario or British Columbia because there aren't opportunities here, which I think it's a shame. Like mm. I am, you know, in the midst of trying to put together um, a play about comfort woman and it's an all Asian cast and it's been like the casting of it has been a bitch because I hope I can swear on this podcast. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> oh, okay. say, we're not, we're not, we're not, it's the internet. We can say whatever we want. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, like the casting is a bitch. Like, you know, and we want to hire in province actors. Like I want to work with Montreal actors or Quebecois actors, but they're just not here. Um, mm. So, you know, I, I really want to change that. Like I want to make, Montreal and Quebec like a hub where Asian artists can come and feel like they can you know make it here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I mean in terms of the 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 exodus and 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 the reason behind that there's are the the theaters are not casting Asian actors for things except for stereotypical roles or or what's happening uh, on that front I think a lot in of your experience, in your experience. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, a lot of the big theater companies here um, program shows that are not really BIPOC friendly, mm. um, you know, and they say colorblind casting and all that. But like at the end of the day, you go to the show and it's mostly white or black. And, you know, I think there's this very, um, you know, to be frank, I think I think there is a skewed um, perception of of diversity here in that diversity means white and black and indigenous Mm. right and and you know it's not it's not to detract from the black people's voices or the indigenous people's voices but it's like there are other ethnicities that need to be represented as well like i'm east asian but i also think like southeast asian um, artists get almost no like uh, mm. representation like because one like they're not even considered like you know when we think of asia a lot of people just think you know china chinese or korean mm. or japanese but like asia is a fucking big country like you know yeah. you don't see any southeast asian representation so you know i think we really need to break away from this mold of diversity just being black white indigenous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so in terms of like producing this, this play about comfort women, I want to get into that in just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, is casting and finding, finding actors, the one of your biggest barriers at this point or, or. 
Yeah, one of the biggest barriers and finding artists, you know, like, and and I want to incorporate like, um, you know, Korean traditional dance and Korean traditional music into mm. this play. And I don't, I can't find any traditional like Korean musicians or Korean mm. dancers with that sort of um, background in Quebec, you know, which then sort of makes us less Vi well, not less viable, but it makes a sort of a, it makes for a weaker grant application when we apply to like provincial. Mm -hmm. um, but then it's like a self-perpetuating cycle. It's like, okay, we don't get the grant because we're using a lot of Ontario artists, but then the show doesn't get produced, which means you don't get representation on stage. Like, you know, yeah. so. Mm -hmm. mm. So tell me about the, the play about comfort women and, and, what drew you to the subject and and uh, uh tell me about 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 the play yeah um what drew me to the subject i think i i actually don't remember how i got to know of comfort woman because you don't study that here in the canadian curriculum but i remember just one day like reading an article about one of the comfort women had passed away and there was only like a handful left. And I was really saddened by this. Like, I think it really affected me. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to show their, I wanted to, you know, give them a voice and give them a platform to be heard, especially in a country that's not directly dealing with those, you know, politics and reparations. You don't mm -hmm. hear much about it here. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I had actually started the play in university um, and I've just been sort of continuously writing it because it's such a heavy topic. And, and I didn't want to also villainize the Japanese. I think, I think a lot of the stalemate that is coming politically from the two countries is because mm -hmm. of the finger pointing. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, you know, it took me this long to sort of finally find the story that I'm happy with. Um, but basically, it's just the story of one comfort woman and one Japanese woman whose husband was a soldier in the Imperial Army. Mm. And it kind of tracks both their stories in um, uh, parallel. But um, the Korean comfort woman character starts out old and then um, gets younger. Mm. And then the Japanese woman character actually starts out young and gets older and at the end um they both meet at two very different times in their lives mm. and it's really just about like forgiveness and the mm. complexity of forgiveness especially when both sides are victims like the mm. japanese lost the war yeah right um but also korea was occupied by japan by for many mm. years and you know basically was treated like the um aboriginal people here mm. so you know it's it's really hard to come to a, a state of forgiveness when both both members have lost quite a bit yeah. yeah in terms of the process of getting to where you knew what the story was mm -hmm. what was that process like for you how how did you start and how did you strip away layers until you came to the story that you're that you just described to me I mean, it went a lot of different ways. And I think each draft of mine changes drastically because I always want to try something new. Like I want to try a different structure or I want to try a different focus. Or um, So 
it was just a lot of trial and error and and hearing it out loud and and seeing what worked and didn't work um i think also at the end it, it's really about uh i think getting to the nexus of what you're trying to say um which actually grant writing is amazing for that <laughs> uh but I think the process was just a lot of experimentation and mm. it's really fun actually like it was really fun seeing the play take on so many different directions and even all the drafts that you know didn't work or you know that sort of idea got shelved like it was still a, a pleasure to write mm. mm-hmm. sometimes i find because you know i have spent years writing writing projects mm-hmm. and ultimately there are things that don't get used but they've informed what does get used exactly so that like i may not that it's like that becomes the subtext of something else you know mm-hmm. yeah and i think also like and i think a lot of people get chapped by this like you're gonna write more than one play like you're gonna write more than one book you're gonna write more mm-hmm. than one project so like, why are you trying to put every idea into this one thing and convolute it? Like, just, mm. you know, take that idea, you know, save, save it in your, you know, like full idea folders or something. And, and you never know, like it'll, it, it might become the perfect fit for another project. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I, I know that, that I've worked on a project, on a few projects that, that sort of did that. They were like too much. Mm-hmm. They were like, we learned all these things. We want to put all this in. And then we would do a workshop <laughs> and our selected audience would be like it was kind of neat but i Didn't. don't know what the story was right exactly yeah. and they were like oh i understand we need to tell one story we we're trying to tell too many stories exactly. so you start to strip things away and and start to and start to be like but i really like this and, <laughs> you, and you know if you follow stephen king's advice if you're like i really like this that's the first thing to go you yeah. know and you just start pulling things out until you finally get to a story yeah, and I think like specificity and details are so important. Like if if mm-hmm. if you're trying to do everything, it just becomes a general wash, and and mm-hmm. you just and all the audience walks away with are impressions. Mm-hmm. And impressions, as soon as you walk out that theater, as soon as you put on your coat, like you forget it, right? Um, yeah. And and as artists, we we want our work to be memorable. So like, why are you doing yourself the disservice of you know like giving a wash of something versus yeah. something specific, conc- like, you know, saturated, like one color. It's so true. It's I remember, um, you know, I think recently I, I, I came to the realization that the last thing I want somebody to think when they leave something that I've, that I've created mm-hmm. as they're putting on their coat to turn to their partner and go, that was nice. Yeah, exactly. Like the most, dismissive uh, niceties (laughs) yes i don't want that i don't want that but working front of house in a theater also taught me about the way the general public deals with like says about things when they didn't like it but Mm. they don't want to admit they like so i worked in like one of the big theaters in toronto and so there's some big budget things so people pay a pretty penny to go see these things and people pay a lot of money to see something they don't necessarily like to admit that (laughs) they thought it was trash which i think is 
really i think it's the death of theater criticism and i don't oh. think there are real theater critics anymore i think the last theater critic died in like the 19 whatevers but like yeah but that's the thing you see that even among art even among the community of artists you you cannot say to someone that you didn't like it mm. because I, because then you are risking a future job or a future contract yeah and i feel like it's just feeding into this awful cycle of just like this dismissive niceties and and you know mm -hmm. a lot of shit gets on put on stage because we're afraid to say it's shit <laughs> it's a lot there's certainly a lot of a lot of i think a lot of mediocrity that ends up on the stages oh yeah um we're trying to satisfy too many things sometimes again mm -hmm. stories too broad or, or or things like that what the general public says though the one thing the phrase that i heard over and over when i would when people would be leaving a show mm -hmm. that was not very good that they paid a lot of money for it. They, they would say, everybody did such a great job. <laughs> and uh, that phrase for me, I soon learned that that's, this is a person who in a couple of weeks is going to admit to themselves that they didn't like it. But right now yeah. they paid too much money for them to admit that they didn't like this show. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I didn't like it. Um, you know, and it, this is another rule of mine as well. Like, I don't give standing ovations lightly. You know, mm. I think it's become very trendy to always give a standing ovation after a show. And mm. then it's like a fucking pandemic. One person stands and suddenly everyone's like, oh, I should stand too. Yes. And it's only everyone's getting a standing ovation. And people think it was like a great show. But, it, you know, like, you know, maybe someone did think it was an amazing show because tastes differ. But I think it's it's really... You know, a lot of mediocre work gets attributed to theater in particular, I think, as an art form versus mm -hmm. other mediums such as like music or, or dance, mm -hmm. because I think we are afraid to talk about it. Sure. You know, it's funny about the, the standing ovation is, you know, we've all we've all been at the show that sort of like starts as a spattering of people standing up. And then <laughs> yeah. I guess, oh, yeah. But if you've ever been in in an audience that gives a true standing ovation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um I remember the first one. My first true standing ovation, ovation. that I was in the audience for mm -hmm. was Kim's Convenience at Toronto Fringe. Okay. And it was like, you know, I somehow as soon as the lights went down on that show, mm. um in my bones I knew I was going to stand. Right. And Everybody stood as soon as the, as soon as the lights came back oh. up, and that's 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 the true thing. We can't help ourselves. That's a true exactly. standing ovation, and anything else is kind of cheap. And if we're on stage, we know. Oh yeah, for sure. The energy is completely different, and like the yeah. meaning of a standing ovation, it was that it moved you so much to stand, right? Mm -hmm. Like you cannot, like you just said, like you cannot stay sitting mm -hmm. after witnessing something like that. Like yeah. you know, that's what it actually means. So yeah. Yeah. It's always so difficult, though, to give the difficult feedback. But I always find, like, you know, let's say, let's use Fringe Festivals, for mm -hmm. example. When I've been at a show at a Fringe Festival, if I see something that's terrible, I'm not going to tell the person there and then that mm. I thought it was terrible. Mm -hmm. But I'm also not going to lie to them. I'm not going to meet them after the right. show and rave about something that wasn't good. Right. I will leave and not say anything and i'll connect with them like maybe a couple of weeks after fringe and try to have an honest conversation and right. usually i find out that 
they knew it was pretty terrible while they were doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. I I think, I mean, giving feedback is also an art in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And I I think it it really should be taught at a lot of theater departments how Mm -hmm. to give good feedback. And, and, you know, it's not about coddling that person, like you said, but um, it it is hard. yeah, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, usually I, I mean, personally, I usually don't say it unless mm-hmm. someone asks me. And usually it's not one of the people who are involved in the production. It's mm-hmm. like a fellow audience member and they're like, what did you think? Um, and I'll oh my God. Audience- if somebody, if somebody is leaning over to you conspiratorial and go, is conspiratorially and going, <laughs> so what did you think? You know, they think it's trash. Oh yeah, for sure. But like, you know, <laughs> right. And, and, but, but I, I also believe in giving specific criticism. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just say, oh, that was shit. And then walk away. Cause then you're no. like, well, that doesn't help anyone. Like I will say like, you know, I think the, uh, like, I, I think the set design did not help the blocking of the actors mm. or, you know, I think the, 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 you know, you, you become specific with your criticism yeah. like, and, and, and what could have changed. And I think it's really important to ha- have a critical mindset going into a show especially as Mm -hmm. practitioners um it's kind of hard because then you kind of lose the fun of just enjoying a show yeah i've I've realized that like i can no longer go to a show and just enjoy it i'm like you know i'm questioning everything i'm like why did the director make this choice or you know why is the actor you know like moving that way Mm -hmm. instead of this other way and um but i think we really need to like uh like practice that muscle Mm-hmm. Um, because in in a lot of ways you learn a lot more from the shows that don't speak to you that don't resonate with you than the shows that do absolutely yeah i i you know i see i was seeing a lot of theater <laughs> yeah in the, in the before times but in the before times i was seeing quite a bit of theater you know having a podcast being a member of the media you get invited to a lot of mm-hmm. stuff and some of it was good and some of it was not mm-hmm. and i found myself at a certain point I would get my brain if I was I would get really carried away by something that was that was that was wonderful. Mm. And when something wasn't, I would I had to put myself in an analytical mm. frame mm-hmm. and start to just analyze why isn't this working? Right. What's missing? Why is this not working for me? So that it wasn't just like cuz you know, sometimes when you see something and it's not good, you could just like you start watching the audience. Right. Or you disengage. The, yeah, you disengage. Yeah. But I think it's, like you say, you learn a lot from the shows that don't work. Mm-hmm. And I've often, sometimes I find that it's harder for me, it's harder sometimes to talk about the shows that are great. It is, because I think the great, great shows, like, you only really speak in like really big terms when it's great uh, because it's hard to sort of recapture those moments of details and specificity that like mm-hmm. made it so great. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've seen some really great stuff and all I could say to my friend afterwards is it's so good. Yeah, I know. So exactly. <laughs> and you're just repeating over and over. So good. So good. But if a show is like bad. Oh, you know. <laughs> oh, you can talk so deeply about what was wrong with it. Right, you know? right. I think also it, it speaks to the fact that like, um, like when it's good, it's just, um, 
like when it just works, you don't see the moving parts, mm. right? Like it just it it just comes to you in like this beautiful package. So mm. it's actually harder, I think, to dissect why it's good because I think it does such a good job of being like a almost like a perfect gestalt than it yeah. is when it's you know this this coherent and you see the moving parts that aren't you know gearing right together. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. yeah, you definitely um, when a show is really good, it, it carries you away so that if it's really successful, that analytical part of your mind doesn't engage. Right. It turns off. It turns off and you're just like carried along with it. Mm-hmm. It's when the show is, is bad and you can like engage that analytical part of your mind, mm-hmm. then you start taking it apart. So, I mean, in a way, not being able to say more than so good, so good is like the best compliment you can For give sure. to a show. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, How have you been handling, we mentioned the before times, how have you (laughs) been handling the now times? Uh, The now times, I mean, you know, as as a, in theater, I, like everyone, um, it's been a big pause, but I think I've actually quite enjoyed it. I've been quite fortunate in that I didn't really have to worry so much financially. Um, So I didn't have that stress or burden on me, but I think I've really enjoyed it because I, it was the sort of breather space I needed to sort of understand like who I was as an artist and like what I wanted to say. Hmm. Um, I, I think I needed it um, to really refocus myself hmm. and, and be able to articulate the direction I want to go in the af- after times. <laughs> Yeah. Have you found have you found uh, yourself able to be creative in this time? What what is that? What's that been like? For yeah, you? I've been actually quite creative, um, and you know, I think that also, uh, you know, I'm an introvert, so like I don't really need to see people. So ah, uh, you're you're <laughs> you're talking my language. You're talking yeah. my language. So to to me, honestly, like the lockdowns and stuff like that didn't really affect me, men, you know, mentally that much. And actually, the sort of um, you know, not needing to go out and see see shows or see people gave me a lot of energy, actually, to, for my art and for mm. my writing. Mm. Um, so I've actually quite enjoyed the um, the silence mm. uh, and the dark stages. Actually. Yeah, I mean, I found I I really wanted to be writing at the beginning, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. in March, April. Mm-hmm. I thought this is a great time to write. Mm. And but at that point, there was so much of the anxiety mm. in the air. Mm-hmm. I was still doom scrolling on the regular on my <laughs> phone and all of this stuff. So I, I just didn't I, the headspace wasn't there. Mm. It was later, like in the summer mm. that I sort of like engaged introvert powers and was like <laughs> able to, to turn to turn out the the the, the outside world and to actually uh, be able to create something and put something together. Yeah, yeah. I, I the the news cycle, I think, is just insane. Mm. Um, and I don't think speed is an artist's best friend. I think speed no. is actually the enemy because speed does not allow us to stop and reflect and actually sort of, you know, not analyze, but like we need to sort of see the nuances of the picture. But speed does not help at all. No, so, no, it does not. Yeah, so I think 
like I totally feel you like in the beginning like February March like it was such a whirlwind yeah yeah mm-hmm. but uh but it's all know. fodder I mean that's true um, I don't relish the the pandemic plays that are coming <laughs> I think not because we lived through it. It'll be like one of those plays. It'll be the it'll be a genre of plays for kids, kids growing up now or like afterwards for people mm-hmm. being like, uh, you know, this is this is, you know, there was this thing that happened in 2020. Yeah, I just look forward to when it's like, uh, you know, you see a movie and it's set in 2020, and instead of like they'll sort of the the way that they'll indicate that it's something in. 2020 is like you'll just like on the side of the street you see a discarded mask <laughs> or something and that'll just be people who live through it will be like it was so like that you know it'll be like that'll be the 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 truth of the of the of the set design is like discarded <laughs> masks somewhere um and people standing in lines that are spaced out uh, but yeah. i you know i think there is that there is a little bit of the it's hard i think it's going to be hard to turn uh, a quarantine into drama mm. for many of us. Actually, I, I find it opposite. I, well, I think mm. actually this might be a very good opportunity for a lot of artists who are, I guess, um, sort of versed or, or only comfortable in in um, what Western um, idea of conflict and mm. Western idea of uh, what a plot is, what a good story mm. is. Um, you know, all this sort of silent, times where nothing's really happening you know i i'd actually be very curious to see how many people sort of turn to other cultures and their way of storytelling because um i think we've been sort of uh i think you know the joseph campbell hero myth and the whole like a three-act structure and and the idea of conflict um has been dominating the space for quite a long time Mm -hmm. and i'd be actually curious to see how people translate quarantine as drama yeah no that's very true that's Mm -hmm. very true um i like the idea of silences um Mm -hmm. i remember when i first came out of theater school i'm like a lot of a lot of theater students and a lot of actors i had a lot of trouble with silence Mm -hmm. um i was really intimidated by it Mm -hmm. somehow i figured that if we're not talking nobody's paying attention (laughs) um and it's only as time went on that i started to get really comfortable Mm -hmm. in silence and how a silence can actually build tension rather than, than, you know, it's sort of sort of being more comfortable in it and, and, and really sort of luxuriating in, in, in a silence, which is something that I think that a, a lot of plays that are written are not good at dealing with silence because it's just like, I'm feeling dialogue on this page, you know, right. we, we talk a lot on stage. <laughs> we talk a lot, but we don't say much is my mm-hmm. um, contention with a lot of mm-hmm. plays. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just like music, you need the rest stops and you need the silences between the notes or it's just noise. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think also silences have to be earned as well. And, and oh, I think, 100%. Yeah, and I think the reason silence is harder to do than just straight dialogue is because you actually need a good actor for silence. Um, That's true. Like you can't, you can't do that with, a, you know, with a, an actor who's not comfortable with silence. Yes. Yeah, no, because it has to be filled with something, right? right? You can't just sit there in silence doing nothing. Right. Uh, that's boring. The silence has to has to be something. It has to mean something. Mm-hmm. For sure. And and 
and silence has to and, and that's the thing it's like an actor's greatest tool sometimes is, is their voice is their words but mm-hmm. um i don't think we get trained enough to use a lot of the other tools which may be more effective sometimes no but i mean it sort of comes back to um how you, we were talking earlier about about being a performer and and using so many of the other tools in in north america we tend to focus on the voice mm-hmm. and speaking mm-hmm. as the main tool um and yes, people talk about it has to be in my body, but a lot of people are not oh, in their no. body because they don't use them. Yeah, I, I call it the talking head syndrome. Like as soon as I see a couch on stage, I just know it's going to be a talking head play. Oh my God. You know oh my I God. Mean? You and me both. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and that's the thing. Like the actors, like to- their their face, their cranium is totally engaged. They're angry, but their body is like anything shoulder down. They're just like a yeah. limp fish. Yeah, <laughs> and and I think that's the curse of naturalism. I think I think we've been mm-hmm. trained that like anything sort of a grandiose like that is not natural. But like you walk down the street, so like people are dramatic creatures. Like mm-hmm. you rarely see someone just talking and not moving. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. So like they need to move their bodies and, and, you know, it's not, I, I might as well listen to a podcast. Like, you know what yes. I mean? Like it, yeah. like why, why pay for lighting if the light does not illuminate anything that tells me more about the story? Like mm. I might as well just close my eyes and like uh, listen to a podcast or listen to a radio play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what has been in now? I think I, as as an introvert, I may know where you're going to go with this question, <laughs> but what has been giving you joy during this pandemic? What has been giving me joy? Um, you know, this pandemic, I rediscovered writing um, manually, so not typing mm. on a computer. And I think that's been giving me a lot of joy. Mm. Um, writing with my hand than, than on a keyboard. Yeah. Um, are you picky about about what you use to write with, like pen, paper? Is that something that you're particularly picky about, or do, are you good with anything? Um, I would say I'm picky only because uh, I, I I think my brain associates really quickly. So like I usually only write on unlined paper. So like mm. I hate lined notebooks. <laughs> um, and you know, as far as like writing writing tools um i i wanted to feel more adult so i bought a fountain pen and, oh. then, <laughs> and uh i can't go back after like <laughs> and, and it's one of those like things where it's like oh it's another expensive hobby but um but um, it's so good isn't it, it like, is. and especially if you write a lot because you don't yeah. need pressure like it, you can only write with a fountain pen i think especially for like yeah. long works yes um, yeah, it's comfortable, yeah. and I always found like if the paper is a is just the right thickness, mm. then the the pen just sort of like glides in, into it. Like yeah. to me, it feels like I'm carving ink into the paper sometimes, and it just sort of like glides in. It's mm. so nice. Yeah, it's such a tactile happiness. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, it's the little things. Um, yeah. So it's the little things that have been giving me joy mm. um, during this pandemic. Um, mm. uh, yeah what else uh i think not having to go it, it this is really paradoxical but like not having to go see theater has been a joy 
which might, you know, I might get burned at the stake for this statement, but I think um, we've been so, I think we've been so accustomed to seeing shows every, you know, seeing every show or, you know, producing at this really fast rate, you know, like six shows a season, you know, there's a show mm. opening every other weekend and, mm -hmm. you know, um, and it's actually been a blessing in disguise to not have to go to these shows. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, it's not necessarily just a show because when you were in the industry, often going to a show, especially if you go to an opening, mm -hmm. is never just seeing the show. Mm -hmm. Oh, but I always, <laughs> I just leave. <laughs> like I don't, I schmooze for maybe five, 10 minutes and then I'm just like, okay, bye. <laughs> you, schmooze, you schmooze more than I do. My stress comes from like before the show oh um i don't know what if, if this happens in montreal <laughs> but like in in toronto um at an opening um the show will always start five to ten minutes late oh, okay because the audience is milling around and that's where most of the schmoozing is happening oh. and it's so stressful and i so just like i just want to watch the play and, and then home. I'm then I'm out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. then I'm out. And, and I, sometimes you know, like a publicist or somebody would be like, "Are you coming to the reception?" And I'm like, "Don't I?" I I'm like, "How do I say no without?" Well, <laughs> you no, you say yes, and then you go to the reception and you pick up like two hors d'oeuvres that pick up your eye, and you leave. <laughs> See, I keep forgetting because I have. I have another podcast that's about being an introvert uh, mm -hmm. with my friend and we talk about like dealing with parties and like how if you have to go to a party you go in you say hello to the host you make sure that you're seen but once you hit your limit you just go you but don't I, say goodbye you right. just go and I need to apply that to like openings yeah like, that sort of thing and, and I think <laughs> a lot of people I think a lot of introverts and I've had to deal with this as well luckily I've like grown out of it quite early in my life but like no one really is watching you so like mm. if you don't say hi to person xyz they're not gonna come at you with a you know pitchfork and, and fire no. like usually they don't even realize you're gone that's why you say hello at the beginning <laughs> I don't even say hello. <laughs> I just. I, I think it's more like at, for, if it's like a party, you say hello to the host because you should. For but sure. for an opening, yeah, maybe wave at a couple of people. But like, yeah, you're 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 right. You're definitely right about that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think people pay much attention to other people as much as we think they do because everyone yeah. is so busy thinking that people are paying attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone's like that, so it's like everyone's yeah. going, "Oh, I'm being watched." you know ah, but ah. in fact no one's watching because you're so busy watching yourself so true it's yeah. so true yeah yeah so well thank you so much for for talking with me this evening this has been great yeah thank you so much Phil. <laughs>